Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Now, another day, another failed privatization. Uh, Thames Water we're talking about today. Thames Water is uh, contingency plans have been drawn up by the government in preparation for its possible collapse. Now, I think we all know about the disaster. Well, we might not all know, but I think just from our lived experience, we might know about the catastrophe that is water privatization. Um, the promise of water privatization, like the promise of all forms of privatization, like rail, like energy, that was that would be brilliant for the customer, that it would unleash a new golden age of competition from which all of us would benefit. Hasn't quite panned out that way, has it? Instead, we faced soaring bills. The idea of competition with a natural monopoly like water or energy or rail is, of course, a farce, a travesty. We all know about how sewerage has been pumped systematically into our waters. Water leaks, um, because obviously water companies are more interested in dividends than they are in fixing our pipes. And a huge debt pile. We'll talk about all of these. We've got two brilliant experts to talk us through exactly what's happening with Thames Water. We also, I want to talk more broadly about privatisation and the absolute catastrophe of privatisation, the promises that we were given, the experiment that in practice has failed. Um, now, first, let's just hear actually from um, Kemi Badenoch, um, a government minister who has this to say, and then I'm going to put this to our guests, see what they think of what she says. I'm very concerned. Obviously, this is a, a commercially sensitive situation, and I know that uh, my colleagues across government are looking at what we can what we can do. I don't know too much about uh, what the plans are going to be. I was concerned to hear that the CEO had resigned uh, abruptly, but we need to make sure that Thames Water as an entity survives. There's a lot of work that the government is trying to do on resolving sewage. At the moment, uh, up, or certainly up until now, the regulator has been focused on keeping consumer bills down. But there's a lot of infrastructure work that needs to take place, and we need that entity to survive and, be, and, uh, and continue going. So that was uh, Kemi Badenoch earlier on. So as I said, contingency plans have been drawn up. Um, now, the company said that they've, they've received £500 million of new funding from shareholders. Um, but the problem is that they have this massive, and we're talking a massive pile of debt, it's quite striking, actually, because when the water companies were privatised, guess how much debt they had? Reasonable guess? A few billion? Nothing. They had no debt. No debt at all. Since then, they've borrowed £53 billion worth of debt. £53 billion. Um, what have they done with that money? You might think. You kind of look at your services and think, where is all this borrowing going? Uh, because obviously, the, the point of the claim with water privatisation that you'll get new investment being ejected into the industry um, well, here's a clue, because they borrowed £53 billion. Guess how much they've given to shareholders for dividends? £72 billion. You'll know that's bigger, like nearly £20 billion more than they actually borrowed. 
Um, the problem with borrowing vast sums of money um, in that industry is when interest rates are low, maybe you can get away with it. As you probably noticed, interest rates have been increasing quite steadily over the last few weeks. So um, that's one of the reasons that, that's, that this has not worked out well. As a business model, it's clearly failed. Now, what we're talking about is temporary uh, nationalization impending. But we're going to talk about this now. That's enough for me. Do press, if you're watching live, I know the vast majority of you do watch after the show, but nonetheless, to those watching live, hello, or listening on the podcast, hello, do press like and subscribe. Um, and you can put questions for the guests and help support the show using Super Chat. You can support us on patreon.com for us, only four. That keeps the show on the road and allows us to do these daily videos that we've been doing, which is exhausting, but always very fulfilling. Um, and the live show, which we've restarted, which we're now doing every Wednesday at 5 p.m. So press like and subscribe. Now, let's press, bring in John Bosco Nuregbo at from We Own It. We Own It, uh, for those who don't know, is a brilliant campaigning organization who also do a lot of very detailed work, making the case for public ownership, uh, exposing the failures of the privatized model. Um, John Bosco, great to see you. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you very much for having us. No, it's great to have you, honestly. Always great to, as, as you probably know, I, like a lot of commentators on the left, I rely a lot on We Own It's work. Um, and it's a very busy day for you, I know. It's been a very busy period for you, I'm sure. John Bosco, could you, could you just explain what, just the gist, what exactly is going on with Thames Water and why is it suddenly in this mess? Well, um, I think it's fair to say that it's in the mess it is in today um, because it's, in effect, um, what you just explained, um, run out of road with respect to its debt. Um, but overall, I think it's kind of really important the context you gave there, the fact that um, these private water companies were these water companies were privatized um, around 30 years ago, I think 33, 34 years ago. And when they were sold off to these private companies, they had zero pounds and zero pence in, in debt. Today they have actually by way of what I've heard somebody describe as financial engineering, um, loaded themselves up um, up to 53 billion pounds um, in debt, while at the same time, of course, sucking out um, 72 billion pounds, 2 billion pounds a year on average um, over the last 30 years, right? So they're in a, in, it, we have a system that's built essentially for destruction, you know, um, kind of the model of uh, people like Mitt Romney, um, you might remember, of course, during the 20, 2008 general election, or not general election, um, 2012 um, American election, where he was um, kind of pilloried in the in the press for going as a private equity um, um, person, going into companies, um, stripping that those companies of all of the important infrastructure within it, loading it up with debt and extracting a lot of that money in the form of dividends and um, pay for the bosses of the company. And you, of course, you'll know that um, the average water company CEO earns about 1.7 million pounds a year. Um, not to mention, of course, the golden welcomes and the golden goodbyes that go along with that. Right. So um, we have a system that is utterly, utterly unsustainable, um, whereas uh, and we are also, of course, incredibly unique um, in, U in Europe as a country that allows our water um, and our water infrastructure to be owned by private companies. It's pretty much unheard of. Um, the only other example, and I may be mistaken um, because um, I haven't kept up um, with the information on that front, is one of the one, either Greece or Portugal 
um, had to were forced because of the debt crisis a few years ago to sell some of the infrastructure, including water. But outside of such kind of um, catastrophic situations like that, we are unique in Europe for allowing this kind of situation to be the norm. Um, and we're even unique within the United Kingdom um, for people who may not know that because Scotland um, owns their own water. Very recently, um, Wales took their water into um, a company that's owned by the Welsh government, right? So we're unique within the United Kingdom as well. And it's an utterly, utterly um, ridiculous way to organize something so important like water. I mean, the, the problem is with privatization. You get these companies and they'd inject private investment into the industry and you'd get competition. People could go, well, I can shop around and that will force the companies to compete. Why hasn't that worked? Well, so I think it's in the nature of public services that there, there is seldom much competition in, in them. You take the example of rail, which is theoretically an, an area in which it's possible to um, describe what competition might look like, right? So if you go to, I live in Oxford, for example, right? If I go to the Oxford train station um, and I stand at a platform, it's possible that there is the Southwestern rail company there. And then there is another possible um, rail company that I could take uh, if I kind of maneuver my, the route of my travel. Um, and people don't think that way when it comes to public services. People arrive where they want to go on the rail on the rail platform and they take the train that's available. The same thing applies in water, but water is even more ridiculous when you talk about competition because there are basically the same set of pipes. The question becomes who owns those pipes, who controls those pipes, and who runs water through those pipes, right? So there's literally no competition. You only have to depend on if you live in if you live in um, Oxford, for example, Southern Water, and in other parts of the country, company, um, companies like Wessex Water and um, um, Thames Water, right? So it's uh, there is literally no competition in this area, and the whole idea that competition would bring down our bills um, obviously has failed um, so um, ridiculous, has failed so much. I mean, we've seen our, our water bills go up forty percent since uh, in real times since privatization started and we've seen no investment as you mentioned um, in fixing infrastructure we leak out about 2.4 billion liters of water every single day we've seen them pour sewage into our river um, a thousand times every single day um, and compare that to scotland where um, their water is publicly owned their rivers and seas are consistently rated as much better than ours in terms of quality um, Scottish water is one of the most popular in terms of customer satisfaction, um, public services in Scotland. Um, and they've invested um, uh, about 35% more um, in their water system than we have. If we invested at the same rate as Scotland, we would have invested something like um, 72 pounds more per household than um, um, the English water companies have. So it's the whole argument that competition would make things better was ridiculous from the start, but we now have 30 years of experience that tells us it's ridiculous. The only reason why it's not changing, and it's quite curious that the Labour Party is not kind of jumping in front of this and saying, this has failed, we're gonna take it into public ownership. Um, the only reason it's continued for so long is that the government, the Tory party is driven by ideology. Um, whether or not a public service works in private hands, they seem to believe that it should 
be operated by the private uh, private companies. There's no kind of reference to reality. They almost live in another reality entirely. I mean, just just finally, I mean, water. I mean, obviously, we want to bring water to public ownership. What we're looking at at the moment is temporary public ownership. It's quite interesting because people will be familiar with that on the railway network where the Conservative government has been forced a number of times now, actually, to bring rail networks into into public ownership. Um, I mean, what kind of temporary public ownership are we looking at? And, and what do you think the likelihood of it actually returning to private ownership? Do you think it's possible that it will just end up in a, in a kind of limbo and even though they're ideologically committed to returning it to private ownership, it might just end up there and a Labour government maybe here in a year or so and be under a lot of pressure not to flog it off again? That's a really good question. I don't know exactly what we are expecting in terms of the temporary public ownership that's been mooted. Um, I would say, though, that um, kind of experience from um, the railways and hopefully um, your next guest, uh, guest um, David, will speak more knowledgeably about what we may be expecting in terms of temporary public ownership for water. But the example in rail is really instructive that um, of all of the private um, companies, rail companies have been taken into public ownership. I can only remember East Coast Rail um, that was taken into public ownership um, some time ago, taken back into the private sector run by Virgin, and then they were forced to take it back into public ownership. And actually a few days ago, the contract for um, that line was renewed in public ownership, right? So it's it often ends up being the case. And if the examples in rail um, are any indication that the service improves to, to the, an extent that it becomes politically unsustainable to get the services back into um, the private sector. So fingers crossed that this happens. Obviously, it's going to take time to fix the kind of disaster that these private companies have created. Um, and I'm not, I'm not here to say to people that it's going to change on day one. But um, I think that ultimately, um, if the service improves enough, and I think that there is every indication that it would improve because the only reason why it is what it is is because the framework of incentives um, lends itself more to extracting profit um, than it does to um, serving the public. And the, once those um, framework of incentives are recalibrated, I imagine that services will kind of almost naturally, of course, people have to actually put in the work to make it change, but almost naturally, it eases the pressure on the pro uh, profit motive, which causes, forces the system down the way it does and hopefully improves the system um, somewhat naturally. But obviously, nothing happens naturally. Joe Bosco, a tour de force. Really, really helpful. Very clear, very detailed stuff. I certainly learned a lot there. Thank you so much for joining us at such short notice. And be, by the way, everyone, do check out We Own It. Just look them up on Twitter or Google them. They've got a brilliant website with huge amounts of resources on energy, uh, sorry, yeah, water, as well as energy rail and a whole host of other things as well. But John Bosco, thanks again. Um, and I will speak to you soon. Thank you very much, Owen. Take care. Speak soon. Brilliant stuff. I'll bring in straight away, actually, Professor, uh, visiting Professor David Hall, former director of the Public Services International Research Unit at the University of Greenwich, a general expert, I think, on all things to do with the the catastrophe, yeah, catastrophic uh, experiment of privatisation. How are you doing, David? Uh, not bad, thanks. It's been a busy day, though. I can imagine. I can imagine. Yes, this must be a mixed blessing for you. Um, just, to, just, yeah. I want your own take, just in terms of what, how you see what. What, what's happened? Because actually there's not been one standard narrative I've noticed. So what, what's your kind of general interpretation of what's happened? 
Yeah, quite interesting. Uh, I'm not sure that Thames are on the verge of technical bankruptcy in the usual sense. I think what's going on is that uh, there's now a, a point being reached where there's stresses between what off what is demanding of shareholders, namely that the shareholders must put in some of their own money, which they've hardly done at all since privatisation in 33 years. And the shareholders, who understandably want to carry on taking dividends out and uh, interest out without having to invest anything, are resisting this. And so I think that's what's going on with the reports we've seen today, that they are demanding 40% increases in water prices. What's that? What that's saying is, very simply, very clearly, the shareholders don't want to invest their money in the company that gives them the profits and the dividends they insist that we have to spend our money uh, as customers in order to get investments in systems uh, in the system and so that's where the tension is and that's why people are saying uh, there's a gap and there's financial tension so they may or may not be uh, technically bankrupt but for sure it's highlighting the real problems and the real failure of the privatized water system, which originally, for those of us old enough to remember it, we were promised that it would solve the problem of finding finance for investment. The private sector has shed loads of money and will be investing it. Uh, well, they do have shed loads of money, but they're not investing it in our water systems. So, I mean, in terms of how this will work, if it gets it be put, if it's put into special administration, what does that actually mean in practice? What we actually, yeah. do, what happens to Thames Water people working there, people, but people who you know who, who receive the so-called service? Yeah, special administration is actually something we should welcome. Right? It sounds like a terrible sort of mess, and the companies collapse. And from the shareholders' perspective, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it is unwelcome because they're the ones who are bound to lose out from special administration, like any bankruptcy. But for us, I think we should welcome it and see it as an opportunity. What happens under special administration? The government, in effect, takes over. Temporary nationalisation is a reasonable description of it. All the workers carry on doing their jobs, huh? Uh, that the, the leaks get repaired to the extent that they will. People deal with emergency call-outs. All that work continues on, and the government ensures it does. So that's one important thing that happens under special administration. Um, the other thing that happens is the government then uh, crawls over all the finances and source, sorts out what can be sorted out, and then has to decide what to do with the company itself. And we got two examples, recent examples, that uh, show the possibilities. The first one, the most recent one, shows what I would argue is the wrong possibility, namely when bulb was taken over, the energy supply. That was put in special administration. But instead of nationalizing it and saying, it stays in public ownership, we will run it as a public energy supply company, which would have been very, very welcome to uh just about everybody um what the government did was to say no we will pump money in to pretend it to prop it up as a pretend private company which cost 
billions more than nationalisation and then hand it on to another private company who may or may not end up with the same problems Bob had. The other example for, of use of public administration we can draw on is much better and that was 20 odd years ago when Railtrack, which was the original private company that owned the railway network, collapsed and that was taken into special administration and what happened was it was transferred into a new company which became the publicly owned network rail that we have today. Uh, and so we should look to and indeed push very hard for the government to adopt that route uh, with one important exception that it should not be nationalization, it should be regionalization, it should be public ownership regionally and that requires an extra step. What kind of demands do you think we should be placing on the government in terms of how this special administration, so-called, or, or, or public ownership de facto is, is administered? Yeah, the first demand we should be making is it should be taken into public administration. Uh, some people are suggesting it only gets taken into public administration if it's technically bankrupt in a financial sense. That's not true of special administration. Uh, companies can be taken into special administration just because they're failing to fulfill their public duties, which uh, Thames Water and virtually all the water companies demonstrably are failing to do that. So we can do it anyway. So I think we should say, certainly for Thames, take it into public administration. The second thing is to say, we want the government to set up a sh new shadow public authority to run water. Uh, in each region, but starting with Thames Water region. How can that be done? Very simply, you just take every council in the Thames Water area and say each council puts forward one elected councillor, that body collectively becomes the new public authority responsible for water. People want their water to be managed locally by locally elected people. We saw that in the local elections in May. A lot of people were voting on the basis of who's got the better ideas as to how to deal with these issues. And so the, the next step that the government, we should be pressing the government to do is set up the new uh, shadow public water authorities. And then the third step, when the company's being reorganized and so on, is for the government to hand the company over to the new public water authorities and say, okay, now it's yours. It becomes a public company owned and run by elected local authorities. Please run it publicly through public debate as to the best moves and um, in the way that uh, TFL, for example, is run. And immediately we will have a benefit, a huge benefit, because we will no longer be paying out uh, the um, hundreds of millions per year that we pay out in dividends to uh, the water companies. Instead, we can use that to finance uh, investment. We can also have the best ideas of local people as to how to do it most efficiently. Instead of being restricted as we are now to the ideas of Thames Water shareholders who are just looking at bankable projects, mm. the best way of making a profit. Yeah. So it's like those those are two key steps. Get it into public special administration, create a new um, uh, public regional water authority. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I mean, John Bosco was just making the point about just how rare the situation is in England. I mean, if you look, take the United States, which is, yeah. I suppose, where people regard as a citadel of free market economics. <laughs> this isn't the situation, is it? You, you don't go to Texas or Alabama and, and, and find this sort of situation. No, 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 exactly. Uh, yeah, the U.S. is a very good example. 85, 90% of the U.S. is uh, is in public hands. And very importantly, if, if you look at the problems we've got with sewage overspills, they arise from particular technical circumstances with combined sewers and climate change and population growth. So the problems arise elsewhere. How they deal with it in the States, they sit down locally and work out a solution based on local knowledge, using local software engineers to get the best information, working out that actually they can do it for a quarter of the price that the private sector claims they can do it. And they are helped and supported by a government, which has said, the Biden government has very simply in a big infrastructure package said, there will be $56 billion available to support local authorities, local water company, local public water companies dealing with these issues. Huh? So, uh, we, yeah, we can say, uh, surprisingly, let's follow the US model uh, for water. Let's do it their way. It works. And, I mean, David Brout is asking, I really like David's suggestions, but how can we push for that implementation when the main UK parties are fanatically neoliberal and, and and the point there is actually if you listen to what the noises are coming out from labor they're talking about better regulation they're not talking mm -hmm. about public ownership mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah well the um uh, we that we had had a rehearsal of that a bit i think in the local elections in may where the the green party is the one party that is solidly committed to public ownership but it's episodes like this and all the local episodes of uh, sewage flooding or water cutoffs happening in Kent um, that make people start thinking there must be a better way of doing it. Uh, so we build on these experiences to campaign 
in relation to our local parties. And I think the local and regional level becomes crucial now. So that uh, it's correct to say what Dan said, that the parties themselves are all pretty neoliberal. Uh, but if the local councillors in the Thameswater area, whether they're Lib Dems, Labour, or even Tory, and certainly the Greens, are approached and uh, um, by us uh, to support move to public ownership. Uh, that's a much more favourable situation. And so I think that that's where we now should be concentrating our political efforts to get the uh, grassroots level um, politicians uh, committed to public ownership. And then it becomes increasingly difficult for the main parties to stand on a platform of never doing it after all let's look at what happened with rail uh the um uh, the uh, conservative party may have not had in their manifesto to bring half the railway cons uh, uh, contracts in the country into public hands but that's what they've done even a even a conservative government so i think we have to keep up the pressure and especially at regional and local level and especially on Lib Dems, Labour and Greens. And, and the other point, just in terms of the wider, I suppose, where we're at with privatisation right now across the piece. So we've got, you know, I suppose energy and rail. Where do you think we're at? I mean, public opinion, obviously, if you look at the polls, very consistent, huge opposition to private ownership, overwhelming support for public ownership, including amongst millions of Conservative voters. I mean, millions of Conservative voters are currently pushing it, given how low the Tories are in the polls, but you get the point. Um, right. What, where do you think things are, just in terms of the great privatisation experiment, the nineteen eighties, and where where we're at a few decades on? I think uh, I think th things are shifting hugely. The momentum is all away from privatisation now, even in this country. For some years now, for ten, fifteen years, there's been a discernible trend away from privatisation towards remunicipalisation, terrible word, but bringing things back into public ownership uh, in water, in energy, in waste management uh, and other services in France, in Germany, other countries around Europe, elsewhere across the world uh, and in the USA. So there's been a global trend back towards uh, public ownership simply because of the experiences of privatisation, showing it, it doesn't work, it doesn't deliver as well as public ownership. Uh, but even in the UK, I've already given one or two examples, I think the trend is noticeably the other way. You mentioned quite rightly the public opinion polls, which have become stronger and stronger every year, three to one uh, majorities in favour of public ownership. And uh, even though... Um, took part in a debate at the Cambridge Union, which is a breeding ground for the future uh, ruling class. Uh, and they ended up voting three to one for public ownership of energy, now that was. So this, this really is a broadly held view. Um, and we can see, uh, I mentioned what the Conservative government have done on rail, uh, but they're also, uh, with very little publicity, uh, they are also nationalising part of National Grid. Uh, uh, and the reason they're doing that is because energy, the energy sector so obviously needs planning and oversight in the public interest 
both for developing green energy and for controlling uh, price inflation. So the real forces in favour of uh, public ownership are being felt through even in the Conservative Party. And so I think I, I'd be quite optimistic that over the next few years, months, weeks, days even in this area, uh, I think we'll see stronger positions being adopted by the Labour Party because they'll be under a lot of pressure from their own grassroots to do so. Uh, just talking about public pressure, Tad Cantwell, I know who's over in Ireland, said has, uh, slash sarcasm, uh, you yeah. should do what we did in Ireland. We had key marches for it and lots of laughing emojis. I think there's a, a slight cynicism there just in terms of the movement. Obviously, it was a great movement in Ireland for over, over the issue of water. So if you've got any thoughts yeah. about that. Yeah, but there was in Ireland's a doubly good example because there was this huge movement in Southern Ireland over water, defending the current system, which is uh, locally run, but financed out by central government. And uh, Irish government tried to say, no, nobody does it like that anymore. Everybody's got to pay for their water. Huge demonstrations, uh, they stopped it. But in Northern Ireland as well, uh, under the uh, Blair government, wanted to... Uh, first commercialised and then privatised the water in Northern Ireland. And this was just before the first elections for the National Assembly after the Good Friday Agreement in around 2000. Uh, and I was asked to go over there and talk to campaigners against this proposal. And the extraordinary thing was finding myself there in 2000, a very rare experience, on the same platform as uh, on one side uh, the DUP and on the other side Sinn Féin. Uh, because the one thing that united people in Northern Ireland was resistance to this. And on the doorsteps of those first elections, people said, we don't want to hear the sectarian stuff. We want to know, are you committed to resisting this? And the second decision the elected assembly took after electing and uh, a, choosing a, a, prime, a, a minister was, and we say no to commercialising and privatising water. So very powerful examples from Ireland. We should uh, wake up and do similar things. Great stuff, David. I can just, reading through the comments, people are exceptionally um, delighted with your contributions. David's a very compelling listen. Well done. It's just typical of the sorts of responses we've had. Uh, but you've you've put it very clearly in, in, very, in, in a very accessible format for people to digest and understand exactly what the situation is and uh, where we should go from there as well. Um, yeah, as someone else notes, Lawrence Media, the government is acting like like the stuff the water companies are pumping into the river. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, yes, indeed. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much, David. There, honestly, really, really appreciate it having time. I know you're having a very busy day, and uh, we really appreciate you taking out the time to come and speak to us. No, oh, thanks very much for the invitation. It's great work you're doing on these uh, the podcasts, Owen. Thank you. Bless you. Very sweet of you, David. I'll speak to you soon, and take care. Take, take care. Bye bye. Um, We've got lots of, yeah, we'll get, okay, I'm going to keep the conversation going because I've got other things to talk to you about as well, by the way. Shiny warm, most river pollution isn't sewage. It's due to overgrazing farm animal waste. We need land and farming reform and climate policies to tackle this. That's really interesting, actually, in terms of just having, I guess, a more far-reaching reform program, not least in terms of how we organise agriculture in this country, which is not something, let's be honest, that we normally talk about on the left. I think partly because in terms of rural areas, the left hasn't, has, I think, just taking it as read that they're Tory strongholds, and even though there's huge amounts of rural poverty in this country, uh, but I think that's a very, very important point. Um, what do I want to talk to you about? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna in, indulge in some um, 
masochism, sadomasochism, actually, I'm afraid to say, guys. Uh, we're going to talk about the Labour Party, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. They are the government in waiting, and uh, we need to talk about them. So it's getting quite hard now to keep up with um, Labour pledges being discarded. Um, it's like Labour pledges discarded per hour is a new form of measurement. <laughs> Uh, it's it seems to be what one a minute at the moment. I can't keep track. Let's just see the latest um, uh, pledges that they're throwing out the out of the window. So they had this great, uh, actually, genuinely, it was actually a really good policy of all the policies they had. This was their flagship, transformative, worth waiting for Labour because they're going to do something about the climate emergency and also create lots of jobs, help shift our economy. They're going to pay, you know, they're going to borrow twenty eight billion pounds a year on a green transition plan. They postponed it. They've watered it down massively. Uh, so that's their flagship policy, which they've massively uh, diluted. It's now an aspiration for the second half of a parliament. Not the firmest of pledges, let's be honest with you. Um, so that's that's gone. Uh, big tech. Uh, yeah, they were going to have a uh, they were going to have a ten percent uh, digital tax, um, which they've decided, which was going to pay. By the way, um, the, the idea of this was. Uh, they were going to have a 10% digital tax on the revenues of, for example, most of the US search engines, uh, social media companies, online market, uh, online marketplaces. That money would fund a £3 billion support package to reduce business rates for thousands of small high street shops and businesses, which is a good idea because the high street's in crisis. So it was a way, actually, of taxing big business um, who are doing extremely well in order to help support small businesses on the high street who are struggling. Well, they scrapped that anyway. That's gone because they fear retaliation from the US. Just cowardice again. Just cowardice. As soon as they feel any pressure, any pressure whatsoever, what this lot do is they fold. That's what they're going to do. That's what they do in opposition. That's what they're going to do in power. So that was £3.2 billion. Pounds. Um, and they were going to increase the threshold for rates relief from the current threshold of 15000 to 25000 yeah, I mean, it was it was going to be good for smaller businesses. Anyway, they've got rid of that. What's next? Ah, here's another one. This is, uh, they were going to restore the Department for International Development, which was um, scrapped under Boris Johnson. Instead, they're just going to have its functions within the Foreign Office. Now, the problems with that is it won't, A, be properly resourced. If it was an entirely separate department, it would be properly resourced. It would have priority. It would have profile. And also, if you put it in the foreign office, what it means is aid will inevitably become tied to foreign policy goals. So countries will expect that if they wish to receive aid, then it will be in exchange for doing the bidding of the, of, of the British government. Instead of aid being given, whether it be, you know, vaccinations, helping people in emergencies, healthcare, it's helped transform lives, save lives, international aid. Anyway, they got rid of that. Oh, I'm still going, by the way. Sorry, you probably thought that was it. Uh, last uh, Labour conference, uh, Lisa Nandy suggested that she was in favour of giving local authorities powers to introduce rent controls. The likes of Sadiq Khan have been, in London, have been agitating for this. Um, Lisa Nandy scrapped that. Um, not only that, by the way, she's also committed to keep right to buy. What right to buy has meant in practical terms is the flogging off of council housing. And the stock has not been replaced. We'll come on to that. Um, four in 10 um, council homes that were flogged off are now let out by buy-to-let landlords who charge twice the rent 
of a social rent. So including the kids of people who benefited from right to buy, they are now saddled with vast amounts of private rent, devouring their wage packets um, as, as, as a consequence. Now, Labour say, well, actually, guys, the real problem with right to buy is that it, we haven't replaced the stock that has been sold off. Now, the, the problem with that, and, and they said, we'll do it. We'll just replace like for like. The Conservatives promised they'd do that back in 2012. They pro- that, that's already a good thing. It's, it's not like they've just come up with something new there. It's like, aha, we've got the solution. The problem is, it's very easy to flog off council homes at a discount and very hard to build the council housing that you need to replace it in the timescale required. So what we've, the government have nowhere near, nowhere near come, come close to build, replacing the stock they've sold off, that's been sold off with like for like. And do you know what? Labour aren't going to do it otherwise. And do you know what? I'm going to bet you one million pounds, a million pounds, that Labour are not going to replace like for like council properties which are sold off under right to buy. One million pounds. That's what I'm putting. I don't have a million pounds, so I'll have to declare bankruptcy. Um, and I've read online how much I'm supposed to earn. Um, <laughs> just put it, put it bluntly. Um, I have nothing close to one million pounds. So that will mean I'm permanently bankrupt for the rest of my life. Anyway, that's uh, that's the Labour Party for you. That's where we're currently at with Labour. Um, let's just see what people have to say. Beth McCard, no idea who to vote for anymore. Sad state of affairs. I get that, yeah. His, that is that is a problem, isn't it? Oh, yeah, So I've actually forgot one. I forgot. David Bratter, Starmer thinks that letting children starving will make Labour look fiscally responsible. What is he on and how is he still leader? Very good point there. Um, from David Baratta, because what's actually happened is last year, I, I sorry, I completely forgot this. Uh, Labour conference last year voted to have universal free school meals for all children. Um, and that's, uh, Labour have uh, made it clear they're not going to do that. Now, I've seen some of the responses to this, people going, well, that's actually just giving people, children who don't need it um, the f- uh, food they need. Uh, sorry, giving uh, sorry children of, of rich parents uh, food when they don't need it. Oh, apply that logic to the National Health Service then, shall we? If that's your logic, uh, why does the NHS get given to rich people as well as poor people? Why do schools, why are comprehensive schools open for richer people? Should we just have all... Public services should only be for people who are poorer. Is that actually the argument now people are making? Yeah, that is not a progressive argument. The whole point of public services and a welfare state is everyone pays in and everyone gets something back because otherwise you undermine public consent. Notice the National Health Service has massive, overwhelming public support and buy-in. That's because it's a universal public service. That means there's massive pressure on the government to to, to do something, even though obviously under conservative government that obviously hits, unfortunately, um, extreme political ideology. The whole point is you tax rich people more and therefore, whatever benefits they might get from, say, free healthcare or education or universal free school meals is counteracted by the fact that they are taxed more. And you stop stigmatizing poorer kids who have free school meals. And you make sure that everybody who needs free school meals, including many people on modest incomes who are outside of the eligibility criteria, as well as the expensive means testing you have to do and the bureaucracy you have to go through to get eligibility. And the only way of making sure that all people who get the help they need is through universalism. Um, but Labour have uh, have refused to commit to the policy 
that Labour Party, the Labour Party voted for last year. Um, that's what we're talking about. Um, so, I mean, where, where is this going to end? Actually, just reading, it's quite interesting. I'll see if I can actually, if we, if we can get it up. But um, the, the, the Financial Times has an article by someone who is not on the left, I should say, at all, in fact. And the title is, uh, Britain is being primed for a hopeless election. Fear of reckless spending pledges holds Labour back from offering voters change when Labour plays at risk. It is possible that the UK will look back on the next campaign as a hopeless election, a contest between two parties, the support of voters who do not believe either will materially improve their lives or the country. The lack of hope is palpable. People feel battered by inflation, falling living standards, strikes, public service crises and the general sense of decline. Brexit is now viewed by a majority of voters in the state. Labour has yet to fill the void. Politics feels like a battle of low expectations. That's why, that's why it's different from 1997. 1997, there was lots of problems with the country, um, to say the least, after Thatcherism. But because of a financial bubble which popped, you had rising growth and rising living standards at the time. This time, this country is just a burning skip. It's a disaster. It's a complete disaster. And you're going to have a Labour Party, which is just now it's spending all its time. Even the pledges, the modest pledges it has, it's, it's scrapping. What are they going to offer? Like, literally, what are they offering? The, the, the barest of minimums, if that. And I think the problem is, if you get expectations raised by the Tories being ejected, which I still think is likely, I think it's very unlikely the Conservatives will stay in power after the next election, because I think the scale of catastrophe in the country and the sheer number of scandals the Tories have gone through, not least a, a deranged right-wing ideological project by Liz Truss, from which people are now suffering still the consequences, um, as well as Boris Johnson's scandal and all the various other scandals. Um, so I think it's very unlikely the Tories will win. But what will happen is expectations will be raised by Labour just by the Tories being kicked out of power. And then what? What happens a few years, like two years in, when people see that the living standards haven't, in a material sense, properly improved? Public services are still on their knees. The general sense of decline still hangs over all of us. A country in perpetual crisis. I think people are going to get pretty pissed off, actually, to be honest. That's what I think. Um, and I think how much of a blindless, mindless partisan do you have to be now to just cheerlead blindly for the Labour Party when they can't even offer, they can't even they can't even retain the ba the most basic pledges that they've stuck to. It is very frustrating, isn't it? Anyway, that's where we're at. Um, I'm now back in Britain. Hey, as you can see, I've got a slightly burned nose. I've just come back from Glastonbury. I was working, I promise. I was with Navara. Uh, we did some sessions on housing, um, policing, AI, and masculinity. I chaired that one. That was fun. Um, uh, so, yeah, we. Um, but I also overdid it, as you can slightly hear from my voice. And I also got a slightly burned nose. Um, but I'll be we'll be doing I'll be back to do my videos every day pretty much. Um, I oh yeah tomorrow I'll be on Good Morning Britain uh, at half past six and then I'll be doing the Jamie Vine show. So if you want to tune in, I'm also going to do a video tomorrow about something slightly personal, which I hope will help people. Um, just something that's happened to me recently, which does also affect a significant number of people in the country so i hope by talking about a help with the stigma um of what i'm going to talk about so there you go so i'll uh slightly nervous about doing a video about it but i think it is important 
uh, yeah, so I'm going to do a video about something which uh, has personally personally affected me, which I've just had news about and affects a significant number of you as well, including people watching this and listening to this right now. So I hope that helps. Um, and yeah, that's it. So I'll have uh, that video up tomorrow afternoon, early evening. And uh, yeah, you'll see what I mean. Uh, I am nervous about doing it. I'm, I'm very nervous about doing it, but it is important. So I will do that. And I am very much looking forward to hear the feedback and responses from other people who are also affected by what I am going to talk about. Uh, great. All right. Do press like and subscribe. Do support us on patreon.com forward slash mjersey4. I would like to thank, as ever, everyone who's put in super chats. David Barata, as ever. Ted Campbell, as ever. Um, Lawrence Melia, Shiny Warm, and Butler. Beth McCard, thank you so, so much. Thanks for everyone for joining. Thanks so much for our brilliant guests. They were really, again, it's such a privilege doing this because I do learn a lot myself and I hope you all do that as well. Um, we'll be back next Wednesday. As you can see, we, I'm sticking to it, guys. I was really struggling today, I'm not going to lie. Um, but I did make a promise to you that I would do Wednesday at five o'clock every week. Uh, and I'm doing my very best to always stick to that from now on. This is the third week we've done this, so we will keep sticking to that. And I hope, um, I hope that helps. Um, I hope that helps. Yeah, I'm really struggling, so I'm going to go now. Um, yeah, yeah, press like, subscribe. Uh, looking forward to speaking to you tomorrow. Lots of love, and I'll see you in a bit. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.